Keep your Bibles open there. A few years ago, a couple of years ago, I was asked to write a blurb for a, a book on covenant theology by a friend of mine, John T. Rhodes. And in that book, he tells the story of a friend of his called Tim and Tim's three-year-old son, Josh. <clears throat> Josh had committed a, a toddler-level misdemeanor and had been caught red-handed. But like all criminal masterminds, little Josh had his escape route planned. Conversation went something like this. Josh, do you remember our Bible story last night, Daddy? Tim, uh, yes. Josh, where you said that God had forgotten all my sin and all your sin and would never punish us for it again. Tim, beginning to sense danger. Well, yes, but Josh, don't you think it would be better if you did the same and just forgot about this? Josh walks off, no doubt into a lucrative career in law in the years to come. Now now we smile at the biblical acumen and the brass neck of a three-year-old wizard. But John T. tells the story in his book in order to ask a question or to introduce a question that we're going to look at briefly this evening. When we get to it, that does not mean this, this talk's going to be brief. But anyway, it will be brief when we get to this part. But here's the question. His question was this. Who do you think had the best grounds to think that God would be on his side? Was it Tim, the dad, who could claim God's justice and ask that crimes be punished? Or was it Josh, the child, who could appeal to God's mercy and have that forgiveness? In fact, as we know, both of them had a claim to God. Whether it was God's justice or mercy, both had a claim to God. And that tension betrays a mystery behind the tension. And behind this mystery lies a plan. That's what we began to look at last Sunday evening when I gave it the very snazzy Latin title of Pactus Salutis. I just thought that would, that would get you going. And uh, that, that, phrase means, that phrase means the covenant of redemption or the plan of salvation. And it refers to that purpose of God to devise and execute a way of saving sinners that at one and the same time satisfies God's justice and magnifies God's mercy. That was the plan. And central to that plan is the work of the Son of God. Somewhere in eternity, before there was a world made, before there was creation, somewhere in eternity, the plan was conceived within the Godhead and the triune God divided up the tasks necessary for the accomplishment of that plan. That's why we hear that it's the Father who is the sender, it is the Son who is the sent one, and it's the Spirit who comes to the aid of the Son in the work that he does. And I would have to say that many of our troubles as Christian people, many of our problems as believers, stem from the fact that we don't give enough consideration to the grand design of salvation. We tend, I think, by nature to be terribly subjective. 
Our instinct is to want to come, when we come to the Bible, our instinct is to want to rush into the question of what does this do for me? Or what does this say to me? Or what is this asking of me? Maybe we ask the question, how is, what is the cash value of this text? I've heard preachers say, now what is the cash value of what we're learning from the Bible this evening? How is this going to help tomorrow morning when we go to work? There's a tendency, I think, for us to want a takeaway. I know that in some places where people are taught to preach, that's the idea. You give a big idea and then you take, give people three or four things that they can take away with them from the sermon. Or that's the evangelical form of it. The non-evangelical form of it is in the kind of pseudo-pop psychology that turns us ever more into ourselves to find our own self-fulfillment in the text. But even the very spiritual question that you might want to ask of how do I glorify God in my life, in my work, in my relationships may in fact be the wrong question or at least it may be asked far too early in the process. There is a place I think for that question. But the danger behind that question like the other questions that I've mentioned is that it turns the whole matter of church and worship and preaching into an issue of ourselves. We put ourselves at the center of this. How does this affect me? How does this help me? What do I have to learn from this? What does it say to me? One of the things we learn as we listen to Jesus' prayer, this great prayer of Jesus, is that the gospel and its message is in fact, first of all, about God. It is about revealing God to us. And and the problem is that when we reduce the whole Bible story to a matter of moral guidance or morale boosting, and we look for a subjective effect upon us, we're invariably left frustrated and dissatisfied. We don't find peace, we don't find satisfaction, because there's a sense in which we're, we're, we're living at a level that is so low and basic that we cannot satisfy ourselves there. We are more than simply there as a kind of slot machine to have God's truth pushed into the slot machine to satisfy what we need for the moment. Nor are we just people who need a list of rules. Here's what you've got to do tomorrow when you go to church, this, to work. This is what you have to do. A, B, C, D. That's not the way Christian life is, is about. There are commands, there are instructions, but it doesn't begin there. Christian life begins with objective realities. It, the scripture urges us to get to grips with God. Now you can see in this great prayer of Jesus, it is Jesus praying. So We're focusing on the first five verses that are just the introduction to the prayer. But I want you to notice where he begins. He begins where he tells us to begin when we pray. When you pray, say, Our Father in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
He begins with God. And he begins with the plan of salvation. Let me read it to you again. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes to heaven and he said to the Father, the hour has come. There it is. That's a reference to the plan. What hour is this? It's the hour they agreed on before the foundation of the world. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. Here he is on the last night of his earthly life. Here he is within hours of his arrest, his trial, his punishment, his crucifixion. And what is he preoccupied with? What is on his mind? What is sustaining him? Here he is, this, this, as in his humanity, this is the most intense, troubled period of his earthly life. And what is on the mind of the Lord at that moment? What is his great preoccupation? Do you notice? It is with the glory of God. He says, God is glorious. In heaven, that glory is fully displayed and worshipped. And Jesus' mission on earth was to spread the word about the glory of God to those who had never seen it or who disregarded it or who denied it. Now, in these opening verses, we learn something about the glory of God that I want you to see. This is Jesus' preoccupation. Now, we learn, first of all, about the glory God has in himself. We need to pause for a moment uh, and, and ask the question, what does, what does it mean when we talk about the glory of God? And I think it means two things fundamentally. First of all, it signifies the glory that God has in himself. Because the glory, actually, we, we find God called the God of glory, the King of glory. He is in himself glorious. In the Bible, he's jealous for his own glory. In the Bible, he says, I will not share my glory with another. Uh, someone who helps us is a man called Edward Lee. Edward Lee was an Oxford scholar. He served in Parliament in, in England when the Westminster Conference was working on our confession of faith and catechisms. And uh, he wrote that glory, the glory of God, is an attribute that is, it is an essential feature of who God is. It's an attribute that eminently reflects and reveals the perfection of all of his attributes. In other words, you get, you know what attributes are, they're the characteristics of someone. Bring them all, all the things we can say about what God is in himself. Bring them all together. Bring them all together. Add them all up. And that is the glory of God. The splendor of God. It's an attribute that eminently reflects and reveals the perfection of all his attributes. He goes on to say again, God's glory is the infinite excellency of the divine essence. The glory of God is who God is. Who God is in himself. But I want to move on quickly to say that there is a glory. That glory has been put on display for us. Very often when the word glory is used in the Bible, and certainly the way Jesus is using it here, it refers to something that emanates from God, something that he expresses, something that he exhibits, puts on display, communicates. Somehow or other, he, he, makes, he makes manifest to people some of his perfections. 
Now, he has to do that. Why does he have to do that? It's because God is invisible. And so what does he do to kind of manifest who, what he's like? Well, he creates a universe, first of all. He creates the universe in order to express something of himself. What do you think he expresses in the universe? Paul gives us a hint in Romans chapter 1. His power and Godhead. You think of what we know today that they didn't know back then of the size of the universe. The enormity of the universe. And you think God made it in that enormity so that as humanity develops and finds out more about it, we're still awed by it overwhelmed by it, amazed by it, because he's teaching us something of the essential power and Godhead of himself. Not only does he make a universe, but he populates the universe with angels and archangels and seraphim and cherubim and people, people like us, that he has made. He made us in his image. And so he's made himself visible. He's created a means by which we might understand something of who he is. The Bible says the heavens, that is the the universe, displays the glory of God. In Isaiah it says the whole earth is full of his glory. John Calvin said the whole universe is a beautiful theater. A theater of the divine glory. He says, wherever you go in the universe, there are elements of God's glory that can be seen. Calvin says, wherever you turn your eyes, there is no portion of the world, however minute, that does not exhibit some spark of beauty. While it is impossible, he goes on to say, to contemplate the vast, beautiful fabric as it extends all around us, without being overwhelmed by the immense weight of glory that there is. And when John Calvin goes on to write about human beings made in the image of God, he says uh, the glory of God is demonstrated, displayed even in human beings. Not only in human beings' character, we think of character, we tend to spiritualize everything because we're evangelicals, But John Calvin says, even the human body, even the body, he says, there is no part of the body in which some rays of glory do not shine. In fact, he says, the divine glory is displayed even in man's outward appearance. Maybe in some more than others, of course. But the beauty and dignity of humanity reveals the glory of God. It's manifest there. So when we read about the glory of God and what God has revealed of himself to us, we are being given in the scripture God's thoughts about God. And actually our big goal in in our Christian lives, our big goal in our Christian lives should be that we think about God the way God thinks about God. In fact, I would go so far as to say that when we come to church on Sunday, it is primarily for God, and the impact on us should be that we begin to think more about God the way God thinks about God. Now, in the uh, catechism, larger catechism, there's one of the classic answers to the question, what is God? You memorize it so if somebody asks you tomorrow, 
what is God, you can tell them that God is a spirit in and of himself, infinite in being, glory, blessedness, and perfection, all-sufficient, eternal, unchangeable, incomprehensible, everywhere present, almighty, knowing all things, most wise, holy, most just, most merciful, most gracious, long-suffering, and abundant in goodness and truth. You tell them that. Can you remember it? But if you break it down, there are just two things I want to say about the glory of God this evening. The first is that he is self-existing. That's what we mean when we say God is a spirit in and of himself infinite in being, glory, blessedness, and perfection. There's a great illustration of this in Exodus 3. There you have the story of the burning bush. Remember, Moses in the desert, he sees a bush burning, he turns aside to see it, and he is interested in the fact that there's the bush, the bush is still there, there's, it's burning, but the bush is not consumed. The fire goes on, the bush remains undisturbed, untouched. And he wonders about this, and we wonder about that too. We wonder, why did God not just appear to Moses in the desert? as a flame, as a a great burning thing, the way he does, for example, later on when he's leading the children of Israel through the desert. He appears at night as a great pillar of fire. Well, one of the theologians has said this. Think about that for a moment. Think about the fact that the bush does not burn and that the fire burns without the need of fuel. What is that teaching us theologically about God? It's teaching us that God is self-sufficient. The fire burns, but it has no need of fuel. God exists, but he has no need of anything outside of himself. The theological word for this is aseity. It means that God exists of himself or from himself. He exists because he exists. He is because he is. I am that I am in and of himself, as the catechism says, infinite in being, glory, blessedness, and perfection. God has need of nothing. You know that very silly thing you sometimes hear from pulpits or reading books? God needs you. God can't do his work in the world without you. But God is of need of nothing. You take, for example, in Psalm 50, the, uh, the sacrificial system there. God says this, every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. All these pagan nations round about, like Hindus today, will put out their food or or sacrifice their animals because their God needed to be fed. He needed to be fed. He needed the blood of the sacrifice. The Aztecs and the Incas, they threw their grandma and they threw their children and they threw their wives into the fire in a sacrifice to their God because their God needed fed. But God is saying to the children of Israel, These things are already mine. You can't give me anything I don't have already. In fact, in Psalm 50, it says this, If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and its fullness are mine. And then he asked them the question, 
Do I eat the flesh of bulls and drink the blood of goats? Of course not. God needs nothing beyond himself. He is self-existing. Now you say, what is the self-existing nature of God have to do with me? Well, one thing, it should make us humble before him. He doesn't need us. He does not need us. His thoughts are not our thoughts. We need, we need to kind of demonstrate in the way we talk to other people about God the sense that God is great and God is big and God is sufficient in and of himself. But it also should cause us to wonder at him and bow down before him because God is infinite in being and we are finite. God is all-knowing and we are not all-knowing. He is infinite in glory. His glory is without any limitation. That's the wonder of the gospel, that it's this God who needs nothing, who comes and approaches us to give us salvation. So God is self-existent. And God is self-revealing. What does the catechism say? Well, it says some things about God that you could never say about a human, even at a human level. It says that he is all-sufficient, eternal, unchangeable, incomprehensible, everywhere present, almighty, knowing all things. Can't say that about us. Those are what we call the incommunicable attributes of God, the things that he can't share with us. There are things he can share with us at a human level, obviously, not at the same level as his own, but he can share these. He is most wise, most holy, most just, most merciful, gracious, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth. We can be good and true and holy and just and wise at a human level, but he is most of all of these things. And how do we know this about God? Well, we know this about God because he's revealed it to us in his word. There's a great story in Exodus 34. Moses, Moses had an ambition in life. His ambition in life was to see God. If anybody's going to see God, it's going to be Moses. Moses gave us the first five books of the Bible. Moses was uh, the one who came to Pharaoh and brought down all those plagues on Egypt. He's the one who led the children of Israel through to, to the Red Sea, opened the Red Sea, crossed the Red Sea, led them through the wilderness, and for 40 years they were fed in the desert, and they had this great pillar of fire and cloud and so on leading them, and there was manna in the morning and water from the rock, and God did all those amazing things. That's where they learned to make the manna bread, by the way, there in the desert. But Moses' great ambition was he wanted to see God. He insisted. You know the famous words, Exodus 33, show me your glory. What was God's response to Moses? The Lord said, I will make all my goodness pass before me, before you. But here's the problem, Moses. You cannot see my face for no one can see me and live. So how do you solve that problem? So God solved the problem. Gets Moses to go into a cave and he hides him in the cave 
And then just to be sure to be sure, he covers Moses' eyes. So it's doubly, he's doubly hidden away here. Hidden away in the cave, and God covers his eyes. Now, the point of the story, by the way, is God is going to reveal something to Moses. But in the process of revealing it to Moses, he had to hide him and cover his eyes. Why? How is God, Moses ever going to know the Lord? Answer, through the words of the Lord. The, God was going to reveal himself to Moses, but it was not going to be by seeing something. It was to be by hearing a sermon. I will proclaim before you my name, says the Lord. And so he hid Moses so that he could reveal himself to Moses. He covered Moses' eyes so that he could open Moses' ears. The Lord then proclaimed what Moses needed to hear. And only afterwards, after it was all over, that the Lord let him out. And Moses saw the afterburner of the back parts of the glory of God that had passed by. That's all he saw. What he heard was the truth he needed to hear. Here is what he heard. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Now get that. How do we begin this evening? We began with Josh asking for mercy and Tim wanting to show justice. Here is the Lord revealing himself and revealing himself as a God who will both be just and justify sinners. And the thing that clears away many of the speculations, ideas, and opinions and the confusion that people have about God is found right here. Not only is he self-existing, he is self-revealing. And he reveals himself in his word by what he says about himself. And ultimately by what he says about himself in his son in these last days. And that what God wants us to know, not see, but know about him, lies at the very heart of this, of this passage. Look at verse 3. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Knowing God. Now, we live in an intellectually lazy age. We live in the age of sound bites. People don't want to take the time to think about anything, to think things through. It's hard to have an intelligent conversation with anyone, so I've given up conversation altogether. And especially in Christian circles, we, we have all kinds of, we have lo lovely people, they are lovely people, but some of them are feelers and others are doers. They, they want to feel something or they want to do something. And yet Jesus defines salvation here, first of all, not by feeling or doing, but by knowing, knowing God, knowing God. 
And do you know that knowing someone involves study and searching and reflection and listening, listening to them? But our problem is that we don't want to put the time and effort into the relationship. Isn't that the truth? Some of you know this at home. You know this with your kids. You know it with your spouse. You know it with your friends. You don't want to put the time and effort into it of getting to know them. Now, sometimes we're not helped at church, actually. Think of the way the Bible is sometimes taught in Bible teaching churches today. There, there, are, there are those who will give you a kind of uh, space-sized view of the Bible. So they'll do all of John in one sermon. Or they'll give you the 35,000 feet perspective of John. They will give you the overview maybe of a chapter. I mean, I, I know people who if they were doing John 17 would have done it already. And we'd be moving on. In fact, we'd have, we'd have moved, we'd be way ahead of ourselves. And the 35,000 feet view of the Bible is interesting, just as it is to be up in a plane and to have a, a view of things. But you are missing so much that's down there. I remember flying over the Himalayas at 35,000 feet. They looked very interesting, very lovely. But there they were down there. There was absolutely no sense of the perspective of those, of those hills, mountains. There's so much we miss if we, if we are up there. You don't learn theology. You don't learn doctrine. You don't learn God just by taking a superficial view of things. And if you don't learn God, if you don't come to know God, which involves learning, I'm afraid, doctrine, the things that we learn about him. What, what is doctrine ultimately? But learning his idiosyncrasies, learning the way he thinks, learning what, about what pleases him, what doesn't please him. It's learning him, learning to know him. If we don't learn those things, we impoverish ourselves spiritually. Not only that, but we leave ourselves at risk. Because it's doctrine that puts steel in our spine and confidence in our hearts. And without knowing God and knowing about God, because it's by knowing about Him that you get to know Him, without that we're all over the place. And when life throws a curveball at us, we've nowhere to stand. Nowhere to stand. Nothing to put our roots into. Nothing to cling on to. No foothold. See, here is Jesus, and the devil is going to throw a curveball at Jesus within hours of this prayer. Judas Iscariot is already on his way with perhaps between 500 and 1,000 men coming looking to arrest Jesus. Where does he go? He goes to doctrine. He goes to what he knows about his father. He puts his confidence in the plan of salvation, in that eternal pact of redemption. And what is our Lord's great burden? It is that the father would be glorified. Father, glorify 
your son, that your son may glorify you. I've glorified you on earth and accomplished the work you gave me to do. He's reflecting on this great plan of salvation. And if we see the glory of God, the the glory that is God's in himself, we see the glory of God in the humiliation of Jesus, the, the Son of God. He's come into the world in order that he might accomplish the plan, that the Father's plan here. He had come from God and he'd shared the glory of God from all eternity before the world existed. And he'd humbled himself. He'd come into the world. He'd illustrated that in chapter 13 at the beginning of this evening when he had taken off his outer garments and put on the towel, the badge of the slave and got down on his knees with the water to wash the feet of the, the, feet of the disciples. He'd humbled himself. Why did he humble himself? That he might become a servant. He wasn't a servant. He shared the glory of the God of Israel, but he humbled himself to become a servant. Why did he do that? So that he might act on our behalf as the second and last Adam and as the true and faithful Israel and as the obedient and sacrificial servant of the Lord, acting for us, acting in our place to obey God. The Lord Jesus put himself in the place where he was in a covenant of works relationship with the Father. Do this and live. And he did this and we live. He was obedient and his obedience is counted to us. That's why he's going and reporting to his father, Father, I've accomplished the work you gave me to do. These people that I've come into the world for, we'll see in a moment, not tonight, but when we get there. These people I've come into the world for are safe now. They're secure now. They're going to be with us in eternity because I've accomplished the work you gave me to do. Well, here is Jesus then. And what is Jesus like as he he finds himself in the midst of rejection and testing and temptation and suffering and misunderstanding and betrayal? He comes to God, comes to his Father. He reminds himself of the glory of God. He reminds himself of what he knows about God. He finds his rock, his center, his gravitational pull in the glory of God. He reminds himself that his father is both holy and righteous and he's passionate for the glory of God. And in so doing, you see, he brings us back to this great plan of salvation. Is it justice? Is it mercy? We asked at the very beginning. It will be both justice and mercy. Justice and mercy both are part of God's character. God will satisfy his justice and he will magnify his mercy. He will satisfy his justice in his son that is in himself by taking the punishment that's due to us. Sinners' punishment will be meted out but in himself. And he will magnify his mercy. On the basis of that, he will magnify the mercy he shows to guilty sinners as we come resting 
on what Christ has done. That's what we're going to do right now as we come around this table. We're going to rest on what Christ has done. Justice satisfied, mercy shown to the chief of sinners. Let's pray. Father, we pray that tonight we might find ourselves occupied by your glory and by your glory demonstrated in the humiliation of the Son of God. In our place condemned he stood, sealed our ransom by his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Amen.